think at the end of every day, you ask yourself, what did I do today to become mentally stronger? You can't control whether you had bad things happen to you, but you can control how you respond to them. So that would be the question I would say, let's focus on not was it a great day or not, but was I mentally strong today? What did I do that helped me grow mentally stronger? Do you think from being weak, feeling like rubbish, everything's dark, do you think in seven days you can like see a light? I do. I think people can definitely see a change. Welcome back to the Everyday Stoke podcast with myself, William Mulligan. And today I'll be talking with best-selling author, therapist, and host of the Mentally Stronger podcast, Amy Morrow. Today's episode is powered by Huel, which is a quick, affordable, nutritiously complete food with everything that your body needs. Let's get into this talk. I'd like to talk to you about a little bit about stoicism. I'm sure you... I feel like you know a lot about stoicism, whether you study stoicism or not, but um, just reading your books, stoic philosophy kind of comes through. I don't know if you agree with that. Um, I do, yep. Yeah. Have you studied stoicism? I haven't. Um, no, I haven't. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I was just, from a lot of your writing, I'm like, oh, this is like a stoic philosopher's wrote this. So, um, yeah, uh, we'll talk about stoic philosophy a little bit. Well, th that's just what I like to talk about. And then just your own life philosophy, um, okay. how it helps you in life. And I feel like, you know, you share your story with your own philosophy, um, your own little bits of advice. People can resonate with that, I think, um, which would be good. So, um, yeah, uh, first of all, I'd like to just start um, explaining something. Um, there's a popular misconception about stoicism. I'm not sure if you've come across it, that it's like about being cold and... Um, like isolated and p I think people have equated that this is mental strength like if you can just be this like I mean there is a quote about it from Mox Aurelius about being the rock that the waves crash over but it's kind of been taken out of context and um, people equate this to mental strength um, and being a strong person what do you do you agree with that or what do you think is a strong person yeah, I get a lot of feedback sometimes from people who think that. They'll say, if you're mentally strong, does it mean you pretend you don't have emotions or you act like a robot? I don't think any of that is true. I think it's quite the opposite, actually. It's knowing that you have emotions and having the courage to acknowledge how you feel, but also having having the courage to know that you can change how you feel, too. You're not stuck so just because you're sad when you wake up in the morning doesn't mean you have to stay sad all day. Or also it's about responding to the things around you and knowing that just because something difficult happens doesn't mean that you have to be incredibly upset. You can reach from within and figure out how am I going to cope with these things that are happening to me. But I really believe acting tough is completely different from being strong. When people act tough, they act like they don't have any pain. They act like they never yeah. need any help. They'll... Uh, refuse to be vulnerable. And I think mental strength is quite the opposite. It's about knowing that you have limitations and it's about asking for help. And it's about saying, I'm, I'm struggling with something or I'm in pain right now. Yeah, I kind of agree with that. The thing about um, accepting help, I've seen that in your book. Um, and it's something the Stokes talk about is um, there's like an analogy of the soldiers storming a castle walls. Don't know if you've heard it, but the soldier that refuses to hand over the wall gives up on the mission. So it's like, Accepting that help helps you carry on with your your mission. I think that's the same in life. Um, we have to kind of realize that some people hold the answers that we don't hold, I suppose, and they have the knowledge through their life experience that they can give to us. 
Yes. And I've never had anybody come into my therapy office and say, you know, I wish I would have waited five more years to come to therapy. It's always quite the opposite. People will say, I wish I had come in sooner, but I didn't because either I I thought it would mean I was weak for asking for help or because I thought I could do it myself or I thought if I just waited long enough, it would go away. And people are often angry at themselves for waiting so long to finally walk in the therapy door. And I think the same can be said for a lot of things in our lives, not just with professional therapy, but when it comes to asking somebody to help you with a project around the house or when it comes to telling somebody, you know, I could I could use your assistance with my business or even asking for advice for whatever reason. I think it's quite difficult for us to put our ego aside and say, I'm going to accept this help from somebody else. I think I've tried to be asking for help a lot more recently. And it's more about just perspective. Like other people have a different uh, perspective and they can sort of see from a non-biased point of view, I guess. Like you get wrapped up in your own uh, issues and your own problems. You're in like sort of, you're in this little hole in your head and some things kind of don't make sense. But when you talk to someone and they just say it, you go, oh, that's, why, like, why do I make it so complicated? That's it exactly. We often have a story that we tell ourselves. If I ask for help, people are going to judge me. They'll think I'm weak or they might think of me differently. Or I've always, I've got this persona that I'm perfect, that I can do things on my own. And I I don't want to break that by asking for help. But I've never really met anybody who said, you know, asking for help ruined my life. Instead, it's quite the opposite is, and that's how we connect with people. Sometimes we think that people like us because we look like we have it all together. But when you really stop and think about it, like why do you like your friends? It's probably because you can relate to them or they've been vulnerable in some way and they're able to say, yeah, I'm struggling with this. And you could say, yeah, I'm struggling with that too. Yeah. It's not because they said, I know everything and I am able to do everything on my own. Yeah, I think that vulnerability is such a strength in a way, like um, especially in, in society at the moment, it's like, being vulnerable I've, I've made posts about this and people call like say it's like oh this is weak being vulnerable you're wrong but like i think not being vulnerable is putting that guard up so you can never be hurt or you, you're like putting up a shield so no one can ever upset you harm you and even asking for help or putting your trust in other people if you're not doing it it's because like i, I feel like there's a fear of that person harming you or uh, taking your vulnerability for like and using it against you um i mean do, do you think vulnerability is a strength I certainly do. And I agree with what you just said, that when we refuse to be vulnerable, it's because there's a fear of I can't handle it if if you yeah. hurt me or I can't handle it if this doesn't go well. So in order to protect myself, I'm not going to do that anyway. But then you miss out on a lot of things. When you aren't vulnerable, you aren't able to get some of the greatest things out of life, the the true connection with people and the the ability to get help and to form really deeper relationships with people. So I think we lose a lot when we refuse to be vulnerable. Yeah, and this might sound odd, and I don't know if this is vulnerability, but something I've been doing a lot recently, it's like been a goal of mine, is I've always seen myself as like quite introverted. And I've started like trying to be more expressive. And in a way that's making me feel vulnerable, like, oh, what if I embarrass myself? What if I do something stupid? But I've noticed so much growth from it. Uh, in confidence and also just in my like peace of mind because I'm like what what does it matter if I I do something silly like I was always so critical of myself um, but now I just feel kind of free and it's nice I love that and I think that's a wonderful example example of vulnerability to say I've always held one certain belief about myself or I feel more comfortable in this way I'm going to test it as an experiment what happens when I try to do something a little bit differently 
it might not go well. There's never a guarantee that things are going to go wonderfully, but you put yourself out there and tried it. And I think sometimes people get caught up into thinking, well, that's not me. That's not my personality. So therefore I can't do anything different, but there are always opportunities to test. And I'm a firm believer in behavioral experiments because our brains will tell us things like you can't do that. That's not possible. That's uh, too far outside your comfort zone, but you don't know until you try. So sometimes you have to take the action first and then see what happens. Sorry, can you explain the behavioral test? That's quite an interesting topic. Um, can you just explain that a bit more, please? Sure. So uh, if somebody has a belief that says, like, I'm not a good speaker, that was my belief for most of my life. Was, yeah. And I was incredibly shy and I didn't talk. It wasn't until I tested that theory of can I talk in front of two people? Can I talk in front of 10 people to really figure out, does this work or not? And am I able to to speak in front of a crowd? In the past, I would have thought my anxiety would be so high that I would probably pass out on stage. I had incredibly huge fears about how awful it would be. But that's one of those things, again, you don't know until you test it. And so in my therapy office, this is the exact same thing I work with people on quite often. And it sometimes is about social things. Somebody might say, I don't want to go to that networking event because nobody's going to talk to me. So we'll come up with an experiment. Introduce yourself to five people while you're there and see what happens. And then people say, oh, yeah, once I introduced myself to people, they talked back. But it might be somebody who their entire life, whenever they went to a networking event, they sat in the back of the room thinking about how nobody was going to talk to them. And then they made it true. So it wasn't until they came up with an experiment of I'm going to introduce myself to five people and then see what happens that they could see, all right, maybe my actions were reinforcing this belief I had. And if I behave differently, then I'll start to see myself differently, too. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Um, I kind of came up with a concept myself where I'd like do the same, but on like my walks to work or on the bus, like, I'd just try like push my, like I would never say hi to someone in the morning because that's just something I don't do. So like I'd push it, I'd smile at them. It's not quite the same, but then the next day I might like smile again. Then the next day I, I say hi. And it kind of kept pushing it and like it kept me within a comfort zone where I'm not like going up to them, like shaking a hand randomly. But over time I built it and goes like, maybe I am a person that says hi to people in the morning. And it's, it's the same with uh, doing this podcast, like or doing, even just doing Zoom or anything. I used to not like doing anything like this. And then when I started writing my book, I had to get on, I had to get on Zoom calls every day, like all the time. And over like a week, I, I started becoming a person. I'm like, I really enjoy these things. And it, make, it makes no sense, like, that for years I held this belief that I hated these things, but now I like them. And I really like that, that you said you took it one small step at a time. Because yeah. something, some the mistake some people make is they go from zero to 100 and it's too much. And then they almost score themselves so they don't ever want to try again. So somebody who's terrified of public speaking, you don't want the first experience you have with public speaking on a stage in front of 10,000 people because it might be so overwhelming that you then say, I'm never going to do that again. You want to set yourself up for success by doing those small steps. So you might say, I'm going to start by giving myself a talk in the mirror in the morning, and then I'm going to invite somebody I know, uh, my friend or a family member, and I'm going to practice speaking in front of them and you do it in small steps, so it feels a little uncomfortable, but not completely terrifying. Yeah, you know, talking in the mirror, because some, that's something I did years ago, it felt so weird, so alien. But I kept doing it, and kind of got over that, and that really helped me in public. It's just, 
interesting thing, right? That you would think, why would it feel awkward to look at myself? But it is, it's kind of cringeworthy at first. But yeah. the exact same thing, when we get used to that and you can see what you look like and how you're behaving and you get a little more comfortable with that, it becomes much easier to then know, oh, this is how other people see me and I can talk to one other person and then you increase it to two people. Or you just become more comfortable starting conversations in general when you practice it yourself. Yeah, so earlier, you, I think you said that you can, I might be wrong here, you, you can choose to be mentally tough. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, can you explain that? Like. It's all about the the choices you make every day. So sometimes people will think that mental health and mental strength are the same, but they're not. You could have depression and still be mentally strong. It's a makes it more difficult, but it's still possible. Same can be said for, say, a physical strength. You can go to the gym and work out. You might have high cholesterol or high blood pressure, but you can still work out in the gym. So mental strength is the same. It's all about the choices you make every day to challenge yourself just a little bit. People will often ask me, who's an example of a mentally strong person? Let's talk about this celebrity. I have no idea based on their behavior alone whether somebody's mentally strong because you don't know what kind of battles somebody's facing inside their own minds. It's easy to say, well, this person must be mentally strong because they can do this certain thing, but you don't know what else they are struggling with. You don't know how difficult that is for them to do. Some people, it's just easy to say, get up on a stage and and give a rock concert, but that same person might struggle with making a phone call to their doctor. You have no idea. But the point is that we can all choose to to set these goals for ourselves and to figure out how do I step just slightly outside of my comfort zone and what am I growing? How am I learning from this? And where do I want to go from here? Yeah. You, do you ever think that mental strength can be um, like you spoke about someone with like say bad mental health? but they've got like mental strength. Do you ever think it can be a bad thing where they keep like kind of pushing themselves through the wrong thing just because they've got strong, um, you know, they've got strength and they've got this discipline and um, they're making it through, but it's actually the wrong thing for them. Well, I do think that, that, you know, like all things in moderation is a good idea. And so for somebody who says, uh, you know, mental strength is only about self-discipline, I think it's possible to have a life that is so self-disciplined that we forget to have everyday joy and you forget to enjoy the journey. So I think it's all about figuring out what are your values? How do you live according to those values? And and what does that look like in your life? So it's not up to me to say to be a mentally strong person, you have to do X, Y, and Z. It's different for different people, but there are tons of exercises we can do, like practicing gratitude. That's something everybody could do. Or we can challenge the negative thoughts that we have. Uh, we can change our behavior. So many things that all of us could do, but it might look a little different in everybody's life. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I mean, practicing gratitude is something that changed my life w- within like probably a week. It, it, I think I, I think it's something you write about. Is like uh, for many years, I was in this like idea that life is just rubbish and I cannot get out of this. It, the way I've like sort of compared it to is being in a hole. And I'm making it impossible to climb out of that hole by saying like, uh, you know, I'm poor, I'm weak, I'm shy, I'm nervous. Like I can't, there's no way of getting out of it. Life's rubbish. And one day I just tried to switch it. I says, why am I trying to prove that these things are real? Uh, so I started going, oh, things are good. Um, and it felt really fake at the start. But it, even after a week, like I kind of, it didn't fix my life, but it switched it quite good that I was no longer looking for the bad. It was still hard to look for the good. I was no longer, it's like I was standing in front of audience saying like, this is why I can't do it. But then I switched it to looking for reasons I can. 
Um, and it was just that switch. I love that. And I think that is a, a perfect example of how gratitude can get our brains just more focused on the positive. Our, we're often hardwired to go for the negative. Your brain wants to look for danger. But if you can then remind yourself, all right, even though maybe today's not the best day ever, I still had food to eat and water to drink. And there's three other things I can be grateful for. Just helps to remind you the world isn't all bad or that your situation isn't the worst it could be. There's still things that are that are good in the world. And just opening our eyes to that, I think, trains our brain to start focusing just a little bit more on the positive. And then when you start to look for the positive, you feel better. When you feel better, it often affects your behavior because you feel like, oh, I do have some ability to take action in, in my life. And there are things I could do to make it even better. And then when we start changing our behavior, we start to feel better, think more positive, and it sets us up for a much more positive cycle. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like I consider like that I'm quite a positive person, but just yesterday, so like normally I'm like 100% positive, but just yesterday I sort of like, um, I don't know, like I just had a tough day and I reverted straight away looking for the bad. For, for a while, I was looking for the bad and I thought, right, I'm just going to take a break from everything. Um, I just went back home to my daughter. I just like went on a walk with her and kind of like took that break. But like, I kind of don't know why I would revert back to that way so quick. I suspect that when we when we feel bad, it affects our, our thoughts, right? All of our emotions affect the way that we think. If you feel really anxious about something this morning, if you woke up with a lot of anxiety, maybe it's about something completely unrelated. Maybe you're worried about a family member, but then you get a business opportunity. You're much more likely to say no to that business opportunity because you have anxiety about something completely unrelated, but your brain can't quite figure out why you're anxious, but it would just see this business opportunity as a much bigger risk than it actually is. Or if you're sad one day, your brain's going to start thinking about more sad things just naturally. Or when you're mad, if you're mad at somebody, if you get in an argument with somebody and you're angry at them, and there's a reason why, even if you're angry because of something they did 10 minutes ago, you might bring up something that happened six months ago. That's because all of those angry memories get stored in your brain in the exact same place. So when you feel angry, all of those angry thoughts suddenly become really readily available. And so our emotions certainly affect it. And in, our, in the therapy office, we'll often help people figure that out. Like what emotion triggers these kinds of thoughts? Somebody might say, when I'm sad, I feel absolutely worthless. And I start to think I'm not a good enough person. So we'll recognize, well, those thoughts aren't necessarily true. They're just driven by the emotion. So then what can you do to combat those negative thoughts? And then also, how do you shift your emotional state so that you can think more realistically? Oh, so, you know, I saying like, if because I agree when you I notice this with people, I notice this with myself, when you're angry, suddenly you can think of like a million reasons why you should be angry. Um, is that the same or comparable to sadness? Um, it is. So our brain is, is sort of like a file cabinet where all of those thoughts get stored in, into a file. And again, in different parts of your brain, you've got the sad part, the angry part, all of the different emotions, and they get triggered. So when you feel sad, that file opens and all of the sad things that have ever happened to you in your life are, are right there in front of you. So it becomes much easier to remember that sad thing that happened to you in the third grade because you feel sad. So it triggered that file to open. Is that why people would listen to sad songs or watch sad films when they're sad? Yes, we know from the research that we often want to stay in that emotional state that we're in. So we're much more, when we're sad, we're much more likely to 
turn on sad music because it reinforces how we feel. So that's why sometimes you have to proactively say, I don't feel like watching a funny movie right now, or I don't feel like listening to happy music. But if you trust that doing that first, changing your behavior first, changing your environment first can switch your emotional state and force yourself to do it, that often is a really effective way to shift your emotions. Oh, yeah. that's literally what I did yesterday with the walk because um, I didn't I didn't want to do it. But it, part of me was like going like, no, this is the right thing to do, um, especially because I had a lot of work to do. So it's like I wanted to stay there and work. But I thought I'm just kind of being unproductive in this state of mind. And it did. Like after an hour, it completely switched it. It's quite amazing. Um, yeah, I don't know if like I, I don't I don't quite know how it can switch so fast or if yeah, so, if that makes sense. You know, I think there are lots of things. Sometimes it's like if you go for a walk, it releases chemicals in your brain and things get shifted around. And we know that just movement alone is really good for our mental health. So we often get a boost, especially if you're in nature. Nature gives us a huge boost in our mood and our mental health. So there are those things that that tend to trigger much more positive things within us. It's just a matter of talking yourself into it, which is usually the biggest hurdle. But people will say, well, when I'm really sad and I'm sitting on the couch, the last thing I want to do is go work out in the gym. Or the last thing I want to do is call a friend and invite them out for coffee because I don't feel like doing that. That's the tough part is talking yourself into doing something you don't feel like doing, especially when you're down. Yeah, how... Because... Yeah, how do you do that? Um, because I've, I always get in the same thing where it's, where it's like, I know something's good for me. Sort of like talking, talking to someone, for example. I know it's good for me. And as I'm getting older, it's getting easier to get past that barrier of not talking to someone. But even though in the past I've known it's good for me to talk to someone, I'll hold off for a few weeks until I get to sort of a breaking point. And then I go, why didn't I talk to them sooner? Um, but I, how do you get over that resistance or even like speed up getting over that resistance? So a couple of things. So I'll often work with people on creating a list of 10 mood boosters is what we call it. So if I said to you, when you're in a really good mood, what do you like to do? You might say, I listen to happy music. I watch a funny movie. I go for a walk with my daughter. You'd come up with a list of 10 things that maybe after work, if when you're in a really good mood, what do you do? And I guarantee that list is very different from what you do when you're, you've had a rough day and you come home in a bad mood and you're feeling really sad. Yes. And so we'll often look at the, the two different lists and then we'll say, when you come home then and you feel bad, pick something off of this list of the mood boosters, the happy stuff that you do when you're in a good mood and to try to do one of those things on the list. Because it's so hard to talk yourself into, say, going for a walk when you feel really sad, we use the 10 minute rule. Just go for a walk for 10 minutes. If at the 10 minute mark, it is dreadful and you absolutely hate it, go home. You don't have to stick with it. But what we know is once you start doing it, you're much more likely to keep doing it. Getting started is the hardest part. And so once you start, like, okay, after 10 minutes of a walk, probably 98% of the time, you'll be all, oh yeah, I can go for another 20 minutes and it's not a problem. Yeah. It's just, you have to get yourself going. And usually when you tell yourself, well, I'm only gonna do it for 10 minutes, even when you're in a bad mood, it's usually okay to talk yourself into that. We can usually muster up the courage to try something for 10 minutes. Another strategy with some people is they know that when they feel bad, they're going to talk themselves out of it. So we come up with a strategy of here's how you're going to talk yourself into it. And it's your own words. So, for example, I had a man who used to say, I want to go to the gym after work. 
And every morning I set out to go to the gym. But when I get out of work, I have to make the decision when I pull out of the parking lot. I'm either going to turn right and go home or I'm going to turn left and go to the gym. And he said, every day I'm walking out to my car and I'm like, you know, I'm tired today. I deserve a day off. And and I convinced myself to just go straight home. So we created a list of the top 10 reasons why he should go to the gym. And he taped it to his steering wheel. So before he could start his car, he would read that list. And it was like, you know, it's healthy to go to the gym. You'll feel better afterward. You can do it for just 10 minutes. And then once he started reading that list, he said, well, then it's much easier. He said, I talked to myself into turning left and I would go to the gym. So we'll often find these little strategies that people can use to talk themselves either into doing something or out of doing something else. So somebody who says, Late in the evenings, I always reach for for all these snacks and I kind of blow my diet for the whole day. What do we do? We might have a list on the refrigerator of the top 10 reasons why you should reach for, for the carrot sticks as opposed to the junk food. And when people read that and it's in their own words, then they can often be like, okay, I'm going to manage this emotion and find something different to do. Yeah, it's almost like when you're in a certain state of mind, you lose reason. Like yeah. you want, like that, that man you're talking about, he wants to go home. So you lose all reason of your past self that wanted to work out or go to the gym. And then you're looking for any re- excuse out of it. it. It's sort of like when you go to bed, um, you make all these wonderful plans for the next day uh, because there is no resistance. At that point, there's no resistance between you and doing those things. But as soon as you wake up, suddenly you've got the resistance of like waking up, getting out of bed, um, you're going to be cold. Um, so I feel like a lot of it's about like minimizing resistance. It is. And we know from the research too that just as you say, like our logic goes down, the more our emotions go up, the less logic we have. So in order to combat some of that resistance, sometimes you either have to reduce the intensity of your emotion or you have to raise your logic somehow. So sometimes it's that list that can help you figure out, yes, I'm going to read over this list to raise my logic. Here are 10 logical reasons why I should do something. And then the other half of that is sometimes we just reduce the intensity of a of an emotion. So you get up off the couch and turn on the happy music. Might boost your mood a little bit. So your mood is a little, your sadness goes down, your logic goes up. So it's really about finding that balance. Do I need to raise my logic, reduce the intensity of an emotion? There's several strategies you can try to do either one. I think I might start um, incorporating them into my life, specifically doing the things I do when I'm happy. Because like you say, when I get home, I will put on like a, a fun song, like just be a bit silly. But if I was in a bad mood, I wouldn't come home and be silly. But if, like, I, I know myself that after like 10 minutes of being silly, it sort of like switches it. And I do think that, um, you know, my partner's done it to me when I'm in a bad mood. She'll, she'll like, um, put on a silly song or something and be or like cheer me up that way and it that also does it do you think sometimes you do need someone maybe to kind of make that switch for you yeah it's wonderful when we have somebody in our lives who will do that for us and I think the the problem sometimes comes in is somebody calls their friend to say I had a really bad day at work and their friend kind of commiserates yeah my day was bad too And they talk about all the awful things in their day. And then they both feel bad. Nobody really feels better. There's this idea that that venting helps us get everything out. But that's actually not true. That's a myth. Like when you're venting and complaining, it actually adds fuel to the fire and causes us to feel worse. So you don't want to do that. If you really want to shift your mood, you call your friend and talk about something completely different. Like something happy or you ask them how their day was or you make a joke or you start to be silly. Then you feel better. There's nothing to say you can't process a bad day or something a little bit, but you just don't want to get into the mode of complaining. 
So if you have somebody that recognizes that you need some some happy music or some some silliness in your life and they can help you make that shift, that's magic right there. When you have somebody else who recognizes, no, I don't need to sit here and, and complain with you. Instead, let's make a shift. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I find like when you're in that that mood, you, like for a while you find it annoying, like stop stop trying to cheer me up. I don't need cheering up. But most of the times that's exactly what you need. Um, but the thing about, I actually have a friend that calls me most days when I'm on my walks with my daughter and um, most days normally go, he rings me up and he's like got a few problems for five minutes and then he'll say, right, anyway, let's, let's change the tone. But I think like in a way, and because I'll do the same to him sometimes, it's like you kind of get the ideas out your head, but then you don't stay stuck there. You sort of like take it much happier. Um, personally, for me, I think that's quite healthy. Um, do you think that's healthy? <laughs> I do too. I think, yeah. you know, I think it, we don't want to pretend that problems don't exist. If we always just pasted on a smile and said, everything's wonderful in my life, that wouldn't be helpful. You want to make sure that you can say to somebody, yeah, I'm struggling with this. Here's a problem that I have. And it's okay to talk about it. You just don't want to stay stuck there. So I've got a stoic quote. Well, there's a stoic quote. This is sort of paraphrasing, but about um, it's not events that harm us. It's our perception of events that harm us. Do you think that's true? I do. As a therapist, I've seen some people who who really struggle with what would seem like a minor event in their life, whereas other people have had tragedy after tragedy, and they're still the most optimistic and hopeful people ever. And it was really about how they perceive those events. Somebody that struggles with smaller things could easily conclude, my life is awful, terrible things always happen to me, and I'll never have anything good happen. And when you believe that, there's a pretty good chance you'll make that true. And so as opposed to somebody who says, all right, this was an awful phase of my life, this was difficult, and I'm going to take the action to make the next phase of my life as good as it could be, we'll live a completely different life, even though maybe they had very similar circumstances. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I often think of the story of the two brothers, you've probably heard it a lot, but where they had an alcoholic abusive father, and um, one brother turned out to be uh, not alcoholic, great father, and then the other was alcoholic, um, abusive father. And when they was asked why they did that, they said, because my father was abusive alcoholic. Um, so it's the same circumstances, but they've looked at it a different way, um, which I think is quite amazing. And I, I see that I see that all around me, actually, where some people that have been through the hardest times are the most wonderful, caring people. And I often think, is, do you think that's because they've felt those, that, those depths? So they're able to kind of uh, be empathetic with other people. I do. I think sometimes going through really hard things does a couple things for us. I think it really makes us appreciate the good times. Suddenly the everyday things that maybe you get to enjoy, a 10-minute walk outside, feels so much better when you've gone through something really bad. Like we know a cold lemonade tastes better after you've mowed the lawn on a hot sunny day than if you just had it regularly. And so sometimes it makes the good times feel even better, but it also I think helps us relate to other people's pain. Once you know what pain feels like, you can recognize it better in other people and also empathize. Even though their pain might be from something completely different, pain is pain and everybody experiences it. And when you've really gone through deep pain in your own life, I think it does give you a new perspective on other people. Yeah. Um... I'm, I'm not sure if this is something you would uh, maybe advocate for. So uh, I'll just ask you this question, but if you, if you don't think it's like possible, but if someone was in a, like a terrible situation or they felt weak, 
I think that's the better term. They feel weak and like like how I describe it when I was younger, where I felt like kind of powerless and everything was just rubbish. Um, do you think from that position, being weak, feeling like rubbish, everything's dark, do you think in seven days you can like see a light? And do you think there is there's a way to do that? I do. I think I think a week of uh, changing the way that you think, reframing some of those negative thoughts, and then taking some kind of positive action. I think people can definitely see a change in in seven days or less. Do you, do you have any steps? Like, say someone listening is in that place. Do you have any steps that they could literally take that may help them? Sure. I think at the end of every day, you ask yourself, what did I do today to become mentally stronger? Because that's something you can control. You can't control whether you had bad things happen to you, but you can control how you respond to them. So that would be the question I would say, let's focus on not was it a great day or not, but was I mentally strong today? What did I do that helped me grow mentally stronger? I would say every day is about taking action too. Sometimes we uh, forget to take action and we just kind of wait to see if things get better. So if you take some kind of action every day and asking yourself the question, do I need to solve a problem or do I need to solve how I feel about the problem? If you're behind on your bills, that's a problem you probably need to solve. I'm either going to raise my income, I'm going to reduce my debt, I'm going to set a budget, I'm going to take some kind of action. If I am concerned about a family member who's who's drinking, I can't change that. I can't make them not drink. So a lot of people get caught up into, I'm going to tell that person not to drink anymore. I'm going to hide their alcohol bottles. That's actually not the best approach. The approach is, I'm going to solve how I feel about this. And it might mean that I change my behavior and and limiting my contact with them, or I ignore some of their behavior that I don't like. And I think a lot of our suffering in life comes from answering that question the wrong way. We try to solve problems we can't solve. And the problems that we can solve, we don't uh, we don't focus on that. We just try to make ourselves feel better for a minute. So back to the debt example, if somebody says I'm really upset because I have a lot of debt, they might be tempted to just spend the whole weekend watching TV. That makes them feel better for a minute, but it makes things worse because Monday morning you still didn't come up with a plan. So I would say those things. I would say, ask yourself, what did I do today to grow mentally stronger? Uh, when you have a problem, do I need to solve the problem or solve how I feel about the problem? And then what action do I need to take, whether it's action to solve the problem or action to solve how I feel about the problem? And once you start knowing, yeah, there's always some kind of action I can take and people instantly start to feel a little bit better. Yeah, uh, that's actually one for those. Uh, I think I wish I heard, kind of heard a lot of that when I was younger. Um, I mean, it's good to hear now, actually, because I can use it. But um, something that came to mind when you're talking then is the dichotomy of control. Have you ever heard about that? Yes. Yeah, like the stoic, the stoic dichotomy of control. But um, I think what you was explaining kind of falls into that, that, you know, most of the external world, um, these things are outside of our control, like the way people perceive us, the, um, our wealth. Um, in some regards, the Stoics believe that our health is out of, uh, out of our control because as much as you can try to be healthy, things can happen. Um, so they recommend that you focus on what you can control. So, so your opinion, your motivation, your desire, your aversion. And I think that's what, kind of what you were saying is like, focus on your character in a way. Exactly. And when it comes to control, we talk about what's known as the locus of control. Some people believe that their ability to succeed in life is 100% within their control. Other people believe it's fate. Like, uh, I can't control anything. Either good things happen or they don't. The healthiest people are somewhere in between. 
yes, I can work really hard. That's within my control. I can apply for the job. That's within my control. But if I don't get hired, it's not necessarily 100% my fault. Maybe they hired the boss's cousin. You don't know. But we come up with these conclusions often in our lives about what's our fault and what isn't. And sometimes we get that wrong. And just recognizing, yeah, I can go to the gym. I can eat a healthy diet. That's within my control, how much exercise I get. But maybe it's not within your control whether you do develop a disease. Genetics play a role. You can't uh, you can't affect that. So, yeah, I think life gets a lot better when we let go of a lot of the things that we don't have control over and just accept that. Yeah, I agree. That's the one thing um, that from stoicism that it took a long time to let go of that control and understand what's not in, what's not in my control, what is. Um, but that's something that changed my life. I hope you're enjoying today's talk with Amy Morin. Stick around because it gets even better. Just a quick thank you to today's sponsor, Huel, which is a quick, affordable, nutritiously complete food with everything that your body needs. I've been using Huel for a long time now to power my workouts. It keeps me fueled throughout my workouts, throughout my runs. It keeps me going through my writing and now even the podcasting and these talks with these incredible guests. What I love about Huel is that I know I'm getting everything that my body needs. Um, it tastes great. I love it. It falls in line with my own ethics and that's what I like about their company. But also it is so practical when I'm busy on the go, when I'm doing these podcasts, when I'm writing, when we're on trips away to different countries. I know I can just take my Huel with me. Um, it's ready to go in like a minute and it tastes great. If you're interested in any Huel products, use my code EverydayStoic10 for discount. Link will be in the description. I hope you enjoy the rest of the talk. Oh, something I actually um, was thinking is uh, I've bought your um, parenting book. I haven't actually read it yet because we were putting off reading it because my daughter's only five months uh, okay do you think it's worth waiting or because I, I was hoping like if i read it when she's a bit older then it helps it, it's fresh in my mind um or do you think i can just read it now and um you know so i guess it starts probably like the toddler years is where things will will start to to make sense so i guess it would be up to you if you wanted to wait until till you get there because i think it's by the time you get to about two you can start talking about feelings and teaching kids a little bit of the simple things and they'll learn from watching you. So I guess it would be up to you if you if it makes sense for you to read it now or to wait until until about then. Yeah, well, because um, yeah, when I was talking about walking with my daughter, I mean, she, she's in like a um, a holder and I've got like walk, walking, I just walk, go on a little dog walk with her and I'll just uh, read her stoicism or I'll talk to her about stoicism or anything. Not that she understands it, but. Um, I love it. I enjoy it. You know, so, something um, I found very interesting about you is uh, me and my partner, when we was driving to Hungary, we was listening to your podcast because she's just like, she loves your podcast. And um, you had one with a certain guest and um, you didn't agree with what they were saying. And I remember you put like a disclaimer at the start of the podcast and you, um, you explained like you didn't agree. And I, I just thought it was quite... Um, I don't know. I, I found it quite cool that you you was able to talk to them, but also say that you don't agree with them. I think people find that very difficult, um, and they often think if you disagree with someone, then it means you don't like them. Or um, you, you see that a lot on social media. Um, but I just think it's like the, the Stokes just say, like truth is um, so important. Yeah, I think 
I'm okay with other people's opinions and I can handle that. And on, on my own podcasting platform, sometimes I will make that known, like this may not represent my personal view, but here's the other person's view. And I'm going to share it because some of my listeners might still get something from it, even if it's in stark contrast to, to a lot of the things that I talk about, because I want people to know that. And I, and I thought, what an opportunity to be an example of two people who disagree on, on a topic. And yeah, we can still like each other and I can still promote your work and we don't have to agree on absolutely everything. Yeah. Don't you find it crazy that now it's like, if you, if you disagree about anything, even like TV shows, football teams, anything, it's like, you can't mix with those people. And I just kind of don't understand it. And it's, I think that's definitely getting worse with social yeah. media and um, political climates and the economy and things like that, that people just really think you're either with me or you're against me. And if you don't agree with me, then, then we can't possibly be friends. And that concerns me because I think one of the best things we can do is to be open to learning from other people and to figuring out their point of view and to be able to listen to a point of view you don't agree with can be tough, but that can expand your mind to seeing that there are different perspectives and that our brains, our own brains lie to us all the time. It will tell you you can't do something that you can. It will give you a certain perspective. And when you talk to other people, you can see things a little bit differently sometimes. Yeah. Do you think that's a skill, being able to kind of put your um maybe your biases and your preconceptions about people putting that to the side and being open i do i think it takes uh some emotion regulation because you're you might become angry as the other person's talking about something that you absolutely disagree with you have to practice patience because how often do you want to interrupt when somebody's saying something and you want to interrupt to share your viewpoint and it's about listening skills because you can't really argue against somebody's point if you aren't listening to what they said. And listening isn't just about being quiet. Sometimes it's about asking questions. It's about clarifying, asking them to, to give you more information about something. All of those things are really tough to do when your emotions are high, when you're thinking, no, this isn't right. I have to explain my point of view. It takes a lot of restraint to be able to, to sit through listening to somebody else. Yeah, that's interesting that you said um, talking as a part of listening, because I guess, um, you know, if I'm listening to you, you explain something to me and I don't understand what you're saying, but I'm just there nodding. Um, I guess it'll be more, um, it'll be better of me if I'm actually listening to what you're saying is to go, oh, actually, Amy, can you just repeat this? Because I don't understand this term you've used. Um, I've never thought about that, that that interaction is like helping you listen and understand what the person's saying. Exactly. And I've been guilty of that in my own life when somebody's talking and I don't understand what they mean. I just kind of nod my head and rather than asking the question or I don't want to look stupid. So I don't, I don't ask, can you go back and clarify that point? But being a really good listener often involves that saying, can we back up for just one second? You said this thing and I didn't know what it, what it meant. If you could explain that, that would be helpful. And sometimes it's about reflecting back what you heard too, because so often somebody's speaking and then we want to jump in and share our viewpoint. But before we can do that, to be a better listener, it's about saying, let me just make sure I understood you correctly. And if you can reflect back and paraphrase what, what they said, if that person feels heard, they'll then be much more likely to listen to your, your viewpoint too, because they're like, okay, you heard and understood what I said. So often in these conversations where people disagree, somebody raises their voice 
And it's because they feel like you're not hearing me. So that seems like the next logical thing to do. If I say it louder, maybe you'll hear me. And they just keep getting louder and louder, but really nobody's listening. And it's because they're not taking the time to say, let me make sure I understood you. And if you do that to somebody who maybe is getting a little bit heated, you'll often see them immediately start to come back down where they feel a sigh of relief of, okay, you're trying to understand me. Yeah, I, I think sometimes in those debates where it's like people are getting louder and louder, the, the, like, the person who wins is just the person that can be the loudest or the most kind of ignorant, like the most just jumping in. Um, but it's like going to the Stoics is, you know, you, you kind of just want the truth from something. And this is the way I see like an argument is if you're just looking for the truth of what's happened and you're not trying to get, get like what you want, uh, you, you, like you, people want to come out on top, they want to win the argument. If it's more of getting to the truth, then it's no longer an argument, it's more like a collaborative effort to see their perspective, your perspective, and kind of meet where, um, at the truth, I suppose. Yes, and how often do arguments end up about emotion rather than about the facts? So yeah. let's say somebody shows up 10 minutes late and the other person says, you're a jerk because you don't respect me. So then they get into an argument over that. And the person who showed up late said, well, I ran into a bit of traffic. Well, the fact is the person showed up 10 minutes late. Does that mean that they're a jerk and that they don't respect your time? Maybe, but maybe not. But arguing about that fact is probably not going not gonna to change things because you're talking about your emotions. So we can say, I feel really disrespected because you showed up 10 minutes late. And that's a fact. And the person can't really argue with how you feel because you're saying, I feel this way, as opposed to you're a jerk. You're saying, I feel disrespected, not you're a disrespectful human. Yeah, I love that. That's something I think about a lot is to try and be, um, maybe at one point in my life, I tried to be over the top with this, but mindful that the person you're interacting with, the person, even if they're horrible to you, this could be a one-off in their life and they're the, the most perfect person normally, such a kind person, but they've just had an awful, they've had the worst news, anything, and this one day they snapped at you. And that's a way, in fact, it helped me be confident in, in some ways because like, I was no longer sort of um, intimidated by people that I perceived as rude or aggressive or intimidating. I started to be like, Maybe the way they're, they're staring at me like this because they're confused or they've had a bad day. Like it, it could be anything. Yeah. And it, the research will show that we tend to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and not other people. So if we were to go to back to that example of being 10 minutes late, we'd say, I'm a really responsible person and it's not my fault that there was traffic and that's why I was late. When somebody else is 10 minutes late, we're much more likely to think they're irresponsible. They didn't think about leaving on time. They should have checked the traffic or they should have factored that in. And we tend to be much more judgmental versus saying, that's a fact. There was traffic. They were late. That's okay. And to give other people a little bit more of the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, I always use the example of uh, like, if someone cuts you off in traffic, um, they're the worst person. But for some reason, if you ever cut someone off in traffic... Um, I'm late to work. I've, I've got to be somewhere. Uh, and I think sometimes we have to give people the benefit of the doubt. I know there is like a sort of, um, I guess there's a balancing act though, um, which I get this criticism a lot in my masters on stoicism, is like, when do you start to become like a doormat? If you keep letting, giving people the benefit of the doubt, uh, what is that balance? Yeah, that's a good question. Because I think let's say you have a friend who always shows up 20 minutes late. 
Yeah. Then what do you do? So it might be about having that conversation of, you know, I feel disrespected because you're always 20 minutes late or uh, I sp- waste a lot of time sitting here. So I do think it's about knowing how do I be kind to myself too? And what are my expectations? And that you can still speak up and be kind. I think people assume if you speak up, then somehow you're being you're being unkind. But it does raise a question when somebody behaves that way. Did they make a mistake or is this their character, right? And when we look at their uh, their behavior, sometimes we might think, well, this is who that person is, as opposed to they had a bad day, but maybe they had 25 bad days. And how much benefit of the doubt do you give them? So I would say it's about asking, you know, how is this affecting me and what do I want to do about it? And it's OK to set limits or say, I can't do that or I'm going to decline this invitation or I'm going to speak up and say that's that's not OK for you to do. Yeah, um, I think also like we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt for, I guess, mistakes. Like, like for example, if we're late, we'll give ourselves the benefit of doubt, saying, you know, um, there's traffic, something like this. But I don't think we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt when um, we're feeling low or, you know, we're struggling. Right. But we'll give that to other people going like, oh, I can, see, I can see why they're struggling. You know, they've got a stressful job, they've got kids, um, of course. But then when it's on us, we kind of push our emotions under the surface and kind of go like, why am I feeling like this? Or um, I'm weak. Yeah, I think that's it. We feel weak because we can't cope with it. Right. And then the spiral starts. So you get turned down for a job that you wanted and you start to think, clearly I'm not good enough. I'm a loser. Nothing good is going to happen. And that affects your behavior. And then we spiral down. But if our friend said, hey, I didn't get this promotion, we wouldn't say those things to them. We'd probably be like, oh, don't worry. You'll find something else or keep working at it. And I'm sure you'll uh, do great at the next interview. We tend to be much kinder sometimes to other people than we are ourselves when it comes to those things. Sometimes the bigger stuff, we're kinder to to other people as opposed to those little things where we're more judgmental of ourselves. Yeah, I often think like you should treat yourself like you're someone you love. Yes. I think that's a good idea. I do too. And that's really difficult to do sometimes because we are, for whatever reason, we think that we have to be like this really harsh coach. When we make a mistake, it's like we yell at ourselves or we berate ourselves inside our, uh, our own minds, thinking that will motivate us to do better. But there's absolutely no research that shows that. It's quite the opposite. It's when you can be kind to yourself and remind yourself that, all right, you made a mistake, but you're still a good person. That's when you're most likely to go on and do better the next time. Yeah, and I guess it kind of um, it goes back to not like getting stuck in that cycle of thinking you're a bad person and, and keep pushing you down. Um, something I want to ask you, because I do have a newborn that's five months, and you have her at a parenting book. Do you have, for me right now, as she's five months, do you have any advice for me that you think would be helpful? Uh, you know, so I love the idea of taking your daughter for a walk to to improve your mood. I think even babies will pick up on on the emotions, on the stress, on what's going on around them. So even though they can't verbalize yet how they feel or what they're thinking, they will absolutely pick up on that. So I think all the positivity that you can surround a baby with, the better. And because they're learning they're, and they're learning all of these other things, like when, when I get upset, what happens? Does somebody come pick me up? That's wonderful. Then they know, yeah, I can trust people, right? All of these things that we learn about about the world, about ourselves, about other people often come from that time when our brains are forming and yet we don't have the language to explain it. So 
I think for your daughter to know, yes, I can trust that when I'm upset, dad is going to be there. And I can trust that uh, that we're going to do stuff like go for walks and that we are going to have fun and that there's going to be a lot of positivity around us. Those are all the most wonderful things you can do for, for a baby that age. That's good to know because that, that's kind of what I... Um... I sometimes think if like maybe I'm going wrong in certain places, maybe I'm not doing certain things right. But as long as I'm doing that, I feel like I'm I'm doing a good job or I'm doing my best in that sense. And, you know, there's a lot of research too that trying to be a perfect parent really doesn't work out. You just have to be a good enough parent. And that over the years, you're going to make mistakes. And those are actually a wonderful opportunities for your daughter to learn. She's never going to have a perfect boss or a perfect partner people in her life are going to make mistakes. So when she sees you make a mistake or when you aren't 100% doing all the things you want to do, that's okay too. That's good to hear. I'm happy to hear that. Um, there's this stoic, I'm like quite curious to hear your um, thoughts on this stoic exercise of, um, I'm not sure if you've heard of it before, but premeditation malorum, which is the premeditation of the bad things that may happen. Ah, okay. Yeah, so there's like, there's a, a few ideas or a few ways of doing this but something they would do is sort of like they'll sit and meditate and think of um you know a bad thing that could happen that day like losing your job or uh, missing your boss and they kind of sit and reflect on that and then get over that and they believe that it prepared you uh, for when these things happen it builds your mental strength um, and it sort of also takes away um the, the surprise of when these things do happen um yeah, what, what do you think of that exercise so it's interesting. I think it I think it has the potential to be wonderful and I think it has the potential to be damaging depending yeah. on how it's used. And maybe you can help me understand better how it's used. So if somebody thinks about a bad thing happening, but they're imagining themselves coping with it, I got fired today, but yet right after I got fired, I stayed calm, things went okay. That I think can be really helpful. So often we just think about the good things, but there's evidence that if I'm going to run a race and all I do is imagine myself crossing the finish line, my brain reacts as though that wonderful thing already happened and I put less effort into running the race. So if you're going to visualize something, you want to visualize yourself sweating, breathing hard, struggling and putting in the work. That's not fun to visualize. We just want to see the reward at the end. But when you visualize yourself that you're persevering despite the hard work you're putting in or the difficulties, I think that's really helpful. Where I think this exercise could go wrong is for people who can't shut that off. Yeah. Ruminating on something over and over is where it would become a problem. Somebody who says, gosh, I think about getting fired three hours a day or every single day I wake up and I just imagine all the bad things that could happen and they can't get out of that cycle, that's when it could become damaging. Yeah, so that's kind of the advice I've given is like... um because people say, oh, I don't want to be disturbed by these thoughts. Um, especially, I'll explain what the Stoics say as well. But I've always sort of said, if it, if it causes any unease or rumination, then I wouldn't recommend it. But the Stoics do go as far to say, some of them say, to imagine your own death. Um, so you imagine your own death and you've imagined that this thing's happened. And then their belief is that when you realize that you obviously you're still here, is the gratitude that comes with that is you just have this sense of gratitude because you're like, no, I'm still here and this life is so precious. I can't just keep um, getting in a raw, wasting time procrastinating. Like, I've got this precious gift. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of the extreme of it. Well, you know, and something about death, we don't like to think about it, but it's going to happen. 
Mm-hmm. So it's there is a point in our life where where it's going to end. And I think that could help a lot of people put their priorities in order and give you a different perspective. This one little thing I'm consumed with today, how much does that matter in five years, 10 years? When I'm 100 years old, looking back over my life, will this thing I'm really worried about today actually matter? Sometimes that's helpful for people to then be able to say, no, actually, it doesn't. And something else about thoughts that disturb us there's a thing about exposure therapy. The more that we do the things that that bother us sometimes when it's anxiety provoking, the better equipped we are with dealing with it. Somebody who is really scared of something and, they, and they're trying not to think about it, sometimes the solution is to say, let your brain think about it so that when that pops into your head, it's not so scary anymore. And we know this often happens with, say, a traumatic experience from the past. People will go to great lengths to never, ever think about it again. But because they're trying to not think about it, their brain keeps flashing it in front of them when they don't want it to. So sometimes the solution is to go back and actually allow yourself to think about it enough, even though it feels scary. Because once you do that, you think, all right, I can handle it. Then it doesn't keep flashing in your head as much when you don't want it to. So the more you try and run away from something, I guess, and try and avoid something, that can have the opposite effect. It can. So there's an exercise I do with people sometimes where I will tell them, For 30 seconds, think about white bears, like polar bears, stuffed white bears, white bears, white bears, white bears. At the end of 30 seconds, I'll say, now think about absolutely anything you want. Just don't think about white bears. Set the timer for 30 seconds. At the end of that, I'll then say, I'll give them an exercise to do. Like, let's see how many times you can get through the alphabet backwards in the next 30 seconds. Ready, set, go. At the end of that, I'll stop everybody. And then I ask them, when I asked you to think about white bears in phase one, how many of you thought about white bears? And the audience will always say, yeah, no problem. Then I'll say, when I asked you to not think about white bears, how many of you had at least one little white bear that flashed into your head? Every single hand in the room will go up again every time. And then I'll say, well, how about when I gave you that quick exercise about doing the alphabet backwards? And most people will say, I forgot all about the white bears because I was distracted by something else. But the point of that is when we tell ourselves, don't think about that thing, and it might be uh, you had a conversation at lunchtime that didn't go very well, and it's now 7 p.m. and you keep rehashing that and you keep telling yourself, well, just don't think about it. It's going to keep popping into your head. You can distract yourself with an activity and it might be going for a walk, changing the environment. You can usually get that out of your head for a little while. But if you just keep saying, don't think about it, don't think about it, don't think about it, you're going to think about it. We're terrible at at doing that. Do you think that's the same with bad habits? Like if there's something you're not wanting to do and you keep saying, I can't do this, I can't do this. Do you think that can have the opposite effect that way? I do. So because people often ask me, like, why did you write books about what not to do? My books are all like what mentally strong people don't do. And I think in the bigger picture of life, saying I'm going to avoid this thing is helpful about don't feel sorry for yourself, for example, is a much bigger picture thing. But when it comes to these minute little things, the more you say, don't do this, the more that it's reminding your brain not to eat it. So if I sit around all day saying, don't eat the cookie, don't eat the cookie, don't eat the cookie, I'm actually perseverating on eating the cookie. Or if there's a a baseball player who is standing at the plate saying, don't miss the ball, don't miss the ball, don't miss the ball, they're much more likely to actually miss the ball because they keep repeating that phrase in their head. 
So what we know is big picture stuff like, yeah, don't feel sorry for yourself. Maybe you have some policies. Don't go deeply into debt. Don't do this in your life. But when it comes to those little action steps, you want to focus on what what to do to remind yourself, I'm going to eat the apple, not don't eat the cookie. Yeah, that's quite good, actually. You know, something um, that goes in line with that is for me, whenever I'm doing something that like like how I spoke about earlier for the book, I was doing Zoom calls that I was very nervous for. And a long time ago, I would spend a week preparing for that in my mind. And it was just horrible. It would get worse and worse. And like, this is going to make me anxious. The, I'm planning for it, planning for it. And one day I just decided, let's just not plan for it. Um, and it went smoothly. And I think there's a balance. Obviously, you have to plan it some way. But I think the that like cycle that goes on in your head of like, what if this happens? What if this happens? What if this happens? Um, it just, I don't find it helpful at all. And I, I try to say to people like, if um, like I've, my friend, he's in a similar, like similar mindset to me, where I keep overthinking it. And I sometimes say to him, it's just like, um, you, you've had your whole life to prepare for this thing. What's one night of stressing yourself out, overthinking? It's not going to help. I, I like that concept because yes, you have, got all of these skills and tools and strategies so that you can deal with so many things that life throws your way. And so we often think that we're better preparing ourselves with all of those what ifs and I'll do this and what if they say that and how I'll how I'll respond to it. But just knowing, no, I have all of these skills and tools and I'm going to do the best I can in that moment can reassure a lot of people. And for people who are overthinkers, sometimes we'll say, well, let's set a time limit. So somebody who maybe says, I have an interview next Friday and I am I just keep rehashing, like, what am I going to wear? And I tried on 17 different outfits and I can't figure it out. And now I'm imagining it going poorly. Well, how much time do you want to devote to this 30-minute interview? Maybe it's worth one hour of your life and you're going to do that for one hour. Outside of that hour, just remind yourself, I've already devoted an hour to it. It doesn't need to take up more room in my life. Because otherwise, those little things sometimes can be comes so consuming that we'll spend eight hours preparing for something that maybe is only going to last 10 minutes. Yeah, that's actually really good advice. I wish I, I wish I had that sooner. Because um, I, I used to just think about stuff that would never even happen. Uh, and of course, in your imagination, things are, become so much worse because it's boundless. Your imagination has no limits. Um, and you can think of the worst thing happening. Right. Yes, I think that's very helpful, actually, is just allocating um, a small portion. That's what I, I try and do, but I have never, uh, it's never been that rigid. I've just kind of gone like, I think I've done it enough. Um, but I feel like I've had that time and says, right, this, this is enough. Um, anything beyond that is just too much. And, you know, another strategy that often works with people that are overthinkers or people that worry about everything is to actually schedule time to worry. So they'll put 15 minutes in the calendar to worry. And whenever you catch yourself worrying outside of that time, you just remind yourself it's not time to worry yet. And maybe your worrying time is from 7 to 7.15 in the evening. So at 10 a.m. when you're worrying, you say, no, it's not time to worry yet. And you put it off until later. And I'll do this exercise with clients. There's research behind it. I didn't make it up. But when my therapy clients do this, the first week they'll usually say, well, that was awful. I spend all day reminding myself it's not time to worry yet. But there's evidence that after about the second or third week that people can then contain their worrying to just a small part of the day. So it kind of goes back to that 
things that are outside of your control. If you want to worry about those things, give yourself permission to do it for 15 minutes. But when your 15 minutes are up, get up and go do something else. I'm going to go clean the kitchen or I'm going to call a friend and talk about something completely different. After a while, you train your brain. Yes, I'm going to give myself permission to worry, but I'm not going to give myself permission to worry 24-7. I'm going to contain it to just 15 minutes. And for some reason, that really works. A lot of people after the second week, they'll just look like the weight of the world has been lifted off of their shoulders. And they'll say, well, now I can concentrate on what's in front of me because I'm not worried about all the things that might happen later or all the what ifs because I'm focused on what's going on right now. That's really good. Um, I feel like that's something I really want to try. Because I guess um, for most of my life, I was trying to push away worry because I've seen it as like a a negative or an evil. But I guess kind of what you're saying is there is a purpose. Um, There there is a purpose to worry, you know, it's uh, assessing dangers or potential hazards. And this exercise, I guess, is giving you a time frame to um, be productive. Could you say that, that like a productive worrying? Yeah, I think so, because, you know, your brain's going to want to run through some of those what if scenarios. What if this goes poorly? What if that doesn't work out? And so the more you try to push that away, again, that's when it often becomes a much bigger part of your life because it'll keep saying, yeah, but what if? And you didn't worry enough. But a lot of the worries we have are the same things over and over again. What if this happens? Well, what if that really does happen? And am I prepared if it happens? So if you just give yourself permission to do it a little bit, it, like it takes a lot of the uh, the fear out of it. Because sometimes people will worry that they aren't worrying, but then they worry that they're worrying too much. So if you say, all right, I'm going to allow myself to worry, but it's only going to take up a very small portion of my day, that just frees people up to then think, I'm going to think about other stuff throughout the day. Yeah, that, that sounds really good. And uh, like a lot of worry is, um, you know, like you might be worried about a, a leak that you've got in a pipe and you worry about it for months when you could just spend 10 minutes going, right, let's fix it. Right, right. I, I don't know why that is, because I'm guilty of it myself. Um, I've improved on not doing that. But I worry about something so small for months or even years that's fixable within 10 minutes. I think that we have all done that, right? You worry about making a phone call, so you put it off for four days, and it's like it's a five-minute phone call. You just had to take care of something. Or... Uh, you know, we don't want to check the bank account because you don't know how much money is in there. So you worry about the money, but you don't dare take the leap and say, I'm going to check and see how much money is in my account. And again, I think it has to do with with the emotions because we doubt our ability to handle it if it doesn't go well, or we doubt that uh, we'll be uncomfortable. So we think I'm going to put that off until tomorrow. But really, it's just prolonging our our suffering because we're making it more uncomfortable today and more uncomfortable tomorrow versus just like ripping the Band-Aid off and doing it all all at once. So part of it's practice and just teaching our brains, okay, this is uncomfortable, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to face this this thing that's bothering me. And when we really do that, when you start to take action, you'll actually train your brain to say, okay, when there's a problem, I'm going to fix it, not spend four days worrying about it. But again, it goes back to, being willing to take that action in the beginning, which is tough to do. So it, it can come down to, I guess, practice, like maybe over a year of like, um, I guess, awareness, being aware that you can um, do something uh, over, over like a year of having that awareness. I think that could be quite useful. Um, yeah, absolutely. And then once you get into that habit of, OK, I'm going to figure out, is this thing urgent? Is this something I need to take care of today? If it is, I'm going to do it. If it's not, if it's something that can wait a week, I'm not going to spend the whole week thinking about it either. I'm going to move on to something else. 
Yeah, I like that. Um, seeing as like the idea is to uh, of this podcast is talking about our own personal life philosophy. Um, I just thought I'd explain what I see as philosophy. It's just, it's just the way you live. Um, it's the way you treat others. It's the way you handle things. Um, it's just your way of being you, I guess. And um, what is if you could sum up your life philosophy? What is your life philosophy? I think my philosophy would be to to hopefully leave this world better than I found it. And as long as I'm uh, doing things to to help other people and to put some positivity out into the world, I think I'll feel like I've uh, I've done my job of trying to uh, put some positive vibes out into the planet while I'm here. Yeah, I like that. It's like sort of tipping the scale. Because you was here, the world's improved in, in a way rather than the opposite. That's my hope. That's my hope is that when, I'm, so. when I'm gone, something positive behind. I, I think so, especially with your books. I think you've... Uh, but I, I think that's a thing people can get behind. It's quite a simple life philosophy, um, but it has such an impact. Like if you just keep that in, in your mind, you're putting bits of positivity out there. Yeah, I think no matter what you do, what you do for work or where you live or who you're around, we have opportunities to do that every day. You can smile at somebody in the in the store. You can compliment a stranger uh, that you like their shoes. There's so many little things we could do all day. And that's something that you can control is how much positivity you put out into the world every day, despite all the things that happen to you that you can't control. Yeah. Um, before we wrap this up, I just want to ask you uh, a question that um, might seem odd. But the, the premise is that I've got some advice for myself that's um, I see as very peculiar that I like in life that's helped me. Um, that I, I wouldn't really, um, I've never really shared with people because I just think it, it's a bit too uh, niche or weird. Um, but have you got any advice that's like something that's helped you um, that you never normally share with people, or you think maybe this could help people, but you've never really put it into words? Um. Yeah, I guess it's a it's a strange story as well. So for um my my first husband who passed away when we were we were both 26 when he passed away, but he had this very big outgoing personality and I did not. I'm the the shy quiet one. Mm-hmm. Uh and one day somebody walked past us. We were eating at an outdoor restaurant and this person walked past with these bright red pants on and he said, "Oh, I love those pants." And I said, and the person was was like this tall, thin person. And and um, I said, but do you think you could pull them off? And he said, I sure as hell try. And I thought, ooh, in my life, my philosophy used to be like, don't embarrass yourself. Don't do don't do things that are that are too hard because you can't handle it. And sort of in that moment that I think became my mantra, like, I don't care if I can't do something, but I'm just happy if I try. So I try to do things knowing that I may fall flat on my face or it doesn't work out, but that has opened up so many. It's such a simple thing, but has really opened up a lot of doors for me because I think if it doesn't work out, I at least get a good story out of it. Hey, I tried to do this thing. It didn't work out. And either there's a lesson there or a funny story of of something. But I used to be concerned about embarrassing myself or about making a mistake or about being rejected. And that like one line just really took a lot of that uh the fear out of it now I say yeah why not life is pretty short I might as well try I really like that it's like enthusiastic to just try and whatever whatever comes from trying it happens Uh, um thank you Amy for talking today 
And I feel like I, I've learned a lot. I, I can't wait to just listen back to this and kind of incorporate a lot of this into my own life. And I know, um, I know it's going to help me. So, like, I think a lot of my audience is similar to me. Like, well, a small percentage is similar to me. So I know they'll benefit from similar things to me. And then other people may latch on to different ideas and go, I'm going to incorporate that into my life. Um, so I'm very thankful for you sharing these ideas. And sharing your... Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Is there anything you want to say, um, anything you want to add to wrap this up? I guess I would just say you're you're stronger than you think and that your brain will doubt you, but there's so many things that that you can do, but you have to you have to try. You have to put yourself out there and with a behavioral experiment and and challenge your brain's negative thoughts. But when you do that, the world just opens up and you'll be able to train your brain to see that you're more capable and competent than you thought you were. Enjoyed episode two of the Everyday Stoke podcast where I was joined by Amy Morin. I love this talk. I learned a lot from Amy Morin. I think the topics we spoke about um, were very close to me. It's many topics that I've struggled with in, when I was younger and maybe I haven't fully got over them. And obviously Amy Morin is an expert in this field. So it was a perfect guest to join me and it helped me a lot. And I'm starting to incorporate these things into my life. I hope it helps you and I hope that you actually take what she has said, her philosophy for life and incorporate it into your life. If you just take one little thing from her, put it into your life um, and then that can become your life philosophy. And in who knows how long of listening to this podcast, you have developed a life philosophy that will help you become the best version of yourself. Stick around for episode three.